One important thing I forgot to mention during the announcement time that uh, we were able to do uh, during our outdoor service uh, earlier this morning was that we had the uh, privilege and opportunity to um, ordain Adam Kirkton to the office of elder and to install both he and Dave Giebel to the session. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with Presbyterianism, the session is the board of elders that uh, oversee the church. And uh, while an elder ordained to gospel ministry is an elder perpetually, unless uh, for some reason um, is not fit for office, uh, it is on the session that the uh, authority of the elders work together uh, to oversee and to encourage and to serve the church. And so we are excited about that. Um, and uh, for those of you who may not have been able to be with us this morning, um, I would encourage you to uh, uh, find some way to show your encouragement to, to Adam as he has been ordained uh, newly to the office of elder and uh, to Dave as well. So this morning, we will be in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 6 through 7, and then Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45. Before we get to our, gospel, our, uh, our readings today, um, I think I've mentioned the podcast Revisionist History before, and it's a podcast that I've kind of really gotten to enjoy uh, over the last several years. Um, they are in their fifth season of this podcast, and uh, I've listened to all, nearly every episode. I don't agree with everything all the time, but it is a great, episode, a great podcast to help you think about things overlooked, <laughs> as Malcolm Gladwell says in his opening, or forgotten. And in this third episode of the fifth season, Gladwell explores how we choose others to lead us. It was a fascinating episode that took us to Cochabamba, Bolivia, to explore the process of elementary and high school students selecting who would serve on their student councils. A foundation there in Cochabamba works with schools and started asking the question about developing leaders. How are leaders developed? How are leaders chosen? What are the best qualities that we should be looking for in leaders, and how do we train young people to be leaders. And what they found is that the way that schools were choosing their leaders through democratic elections, something that's very familiar to, to us, was not producing the kind of leadership the student bodies needed. What they found is that most leaders came from a particular socioeconomic level, came from a particular group of friends, and particularly were almost always those who displayed the most confidence in public. The, those who were able to confidently speak in public or seemed to have all the answers. What's interesting about that is that the students were not necessarily bad leaders, but they weren't necessarily good leaders either. They primarily looked at issues that the student body needed through a very narrow lens. They, they looked at the issues that the general student body was experiencing, but they only looked at them through their lens of friendship or their socioeconomic level or some other thing that kept them from seeing things in a broader perspective. 
There's a lack of vision and exploration beyond what they personally experienced. There wasn't a whole lot of uh, there wasn't a whole lot of exploration. There wasn't a whole lot of, 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 of having a, a vision beyond what maybe had already been done in the past. But when they started using democratic lotteries, yes, I know that sounds crazy, to select leaders, it didn't matter what socioeconomic level or group of friends you came from or even how much confidence you had of speaking in public. The students tended to see themselves a little bit less equipped. They didn't necessarily see themselves going in as, as fully capable of these leadership positions, but they were eager to learn. They were eager to understand how they could grow in that way. And, and what they found in nearly every example was that this way resulted in better leadership. It resulted in better leadership because it addressed the needs of a larger portion of the student body. It created a healthier environment for learning. It gave these students opportunities to, to hear other ways of uh, seeing the same needs and issues that the student body was seeing and come to ideas together on these councils of students and ways to address them that they likely would not have prior or had not seen happen prior. Now, we may not be ready to use the Powerball to choose our leaders at any level. But what it, this example shows us is that we might not be looking for the right characteristics in our leaders. And those who are in leadership positions might not understand properly what it means to lead. Whether it's those leading in our schools, families, churches, businesses, communities, government, whatever, what does it mean to be leading Shalom both as those who choose our leaders, but also those of us who are leaders. What does it mean for us to be leading Shalom? So to answer this, these questions, we're going to look at 1 Samuel 16, 1, 6 through 7, and Mark 10, 42 through 45. First from 1 Samuel 16, 6 through 7. This is referring to a time when Samuel was sent by God to Bethlehem, and Jesse's sons are coming uh, before Samuel. And when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And then from Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45. And Jesus called to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whomever would be great among you must be your servant, and whomever would be the first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see a, a new vision for our leaders and for our own leadership in whatever area of life you have called us to lead in. Lord, that you would give us 
ears to hear the words of Jesus of calling us to a different kind of leadership. Lord, we pray as you've given us those eyes and those ears by your Spirit, Lord, that we would actually be enlivened by your Spirit to live out what we see and what we hear in your Word. Lord, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we continue our series, Shalom in the Home and Everywhere Else, last week we discussed neighboring shalom. We asked the question, who is my neighbor? And we said that Jesus sets no limits on the neighbor whom we should love. Because Jesus fulfills the law of love, we can seek to live the law of love. And to live the law of love, we answered Jesus' question, how do you read the law? We, we, we looked and said, in order to love our neighbor as ourselves, we have to answer Jesus' question, how do you read the law? And what's interesting is that we often want to say that we are just to love our neighbor as ourselves in some nebulous kind of undefined way, but Jesus is actually defining it for us. How do you love your neighbor? You love your, your neighbor I love my neighbor by actually adhering to the law of God and how we are to treat our neighbors. How are we to love them? And then we saw that Jesus commanded, once the lawyer answered correctly, once we answered correctly to the question, how do you read the law? Jesus' command is to go and do this. And so we are trying to go and do this. And we are going to move further into the specificity of being people of shalom in all areas of society. As we understand this idea of what does it mean to be a neighbor, we're going to start to look at these different aspects. So what does, it, what does neighboring look like? How do we, in our society, do this in, in ways that bring shalom, bring hope and healing so we move from the general imperatives to love our neighbor as ourselves and begin to look at these specific areas of neighbor loving. And this morning we begin with leadership. How do we love our neighbors in leadership? How, how do we bring leadership shalom? And we have to ask ourselves the question in order to get to the answers, do we understand leadership properly? And how we would define, how would we define a good leader? How, what are some of the things that if you were asked, if I asked you right now to write them down or if we were able to have an interactive conversation, what would be the things that you would outline as being defining a good leader? What are the characteristics that you look for or that we should look for in a leader? But for those of us in leadership positions, how do we understand what is required of us? What is most important to us? And the way we answer those questions is of great importance. Not just how we answer the questions, the how we answer them is important. We have to have the right answer. That's important. But even of greater importance is whether we actually live out those answers. Right? We can have the right answer, but if we're actually not living out the right answer, then we aren't understanding leadership properly. We aren't, as we're saying, seeking leadership Shalom. We might answer them correctly, but how does this reflect in the people that we choose to lead us or the way that we lead? 
it can be very different than how we answer those questions. So today we want to see that Jesus gives us a different view and a different way of leadership. First, a different view from, we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel 16, 6 through 7 for this different view. What's interesting is that Samuel is sent by God to Bethlehem to find the next king, right? The Spirit of God has left Saul. Saul is still reigning as king, but God has removed his blessing. So it's time to anoint the next king. And so God sends Samuel to Bethlehem to the house of Jesse to find the next king. God says that he sees in the sons of Jesse the next king of Israel. And so Samuel goes, and when he gets there, the sons of Jesse come. There's a sacrifice taking place that Samuel is doing. They come, and as soon as Samuel sees the firstborn of Jesse, Eliab, Samuel immediately thinks, this is God's guy. This is the guy. You know, he's tall and handsome, firstborn. This must be the guy. But God views it a different way. Samuel's viewing one way. God's viewing a different way. And what's interesting is that, as I just said, the previous chapter, right before this, we, we read that Saul, that God has removed his blessing from Saul, that the Spirit of God has left Saul. And what's interesting is that throughout Saul's reign as king, and before this and then after this, God always refers to Saul as the king that you chose. Right? He says to the people, Saul's the king you chose. Now, God does bless Saul. He puts his blessing upon Saul, but God is clear <laughs> that it's Saul is the king that the people chose. And they chose him. Why? Scripture tells us he was a head taller than any other Israelite. He had dashing good looks. He was a strong man. He brought confidence. He was an image that Israel wanted for the other nations to see. Look at how powerful our king is. Samuel is falling in the same trap again that the people of Israel fell in before with Saul. What does God say? He says, don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. God says, because I have rejected him. The Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And what's interesting is that this idea of that the Lord looks on the on the heart, we'll get to in a, in a moment. But there's also this idea here, right? And previously, and then a- actually after in, in the story of David, where we hear this idea, this understanding of a man after God's own heart. And this has been taken up in kind of popular Christian jargon to mean kind of 
a man or a woman with a heart like God's. And now there is a certain sense that this certainly, we want to have a heart after God's own heart. We want to be people who understand God's heart and to have a heart that would be seen as God's own heart. But the way that this, the way that Scripture talks about this is not how we, as the church, <laughs> typically mean it. A man after God's own heart means a man of God's choosing, a man God has set his heart on. A man after God's own heart is talking about the place the man has in God's heart rather than the place God has in the man's heart. You might say, well, what's, what's the difference? What's, why does that matter? Well, it matters because as we think about leaders, as we think about leadership, even those who we might say are a man or a woman after God's own heart, and meaning in the way that we often mean it where our heart desires the things of God's, those leaders will fail. In fact, David, who is the one who is called the man after God's own heart, if you ever wondered, how can a man be called a man after God's own heart who committed adultery, who committed murder, who tried to cover it up, who did all of these things that clearly go against God's heart and can still be called a man after God's own heart because it's not ultimately David's heart. It's ultimately God's heart for David. You see, God sees according to his heart. God's point of view is determined by his own will and purpose. He sees according to his own intentions, his heart. And it's vital in understanding this in terms of how we understand leadership because it's about God's gracious and sovereign purposes rather than some quality in a leader. God's good and gracious purposes depend ultimately on His will. And so if we see our leadership or if we look to leaders based on not necessarily what's their heart for God, but God's heart for them, it leaves no room for human pride. When pride is seen in a potential leader, we should run the other way, right? This was David's ultimate sin, right? When we read of David walking down this path that we can often ask, how can this be a man after God's own heart? Why does David walk down this path, right? It tells us in Scripture that David walks down this path of adultery and murder and, all, and covering up because he did not do what kings were supposed to do. Right? David's pride had grown to the fact that he was not the type of leader that he was called to be. Right? The kings were supposed to go out, for out, out to war in the spring. The king was supposed to go and serve his people by being on the front line and leading his men. But David's pride allowed him to stay at home, to not do what he had been called to do as a leader. Yeah. 
is pride. Pride in the kingdom that he had built. Pride in the kingdom that he had won. Forgetting that it was all God's doing and not his own. You see, because God did not choose David because of his personal qualities. God doesn't choose us as leaders at, because of our personal qualities. He doesn't call, call us as his people to choose leaders because of personal qualities. As important as those are, what he ultimately calls us to do is to understand that whatever outstanding qualities we might see in David or other leaders, and David had many, right? Later on in this passage, we'll read that David had good looks too, right? He had nice eyes. He had great hair. He had nice skin. He was a handsome man. He would have attracted people. We know that he was brave. We know that he had all these qualities that would be good in a leader, and yet that's not why God chose him. That's why God what God wants to instill in us and our understanding of who we choose as our leaders and who we are as leaders is that whatever outstanding qualities we might see in potential leaders, they are a consequence of not the reason for God's choice of them. And the security, this is also important because of the security of David's leadership will rest on the solid, solid foundation of God's promises, not David's performance. And this is how the gospel transforms how we view leaders and how we as leaders are called to lead. Those that understand this dynamic and rest upon God's promises rest in Jesus Christ and are those who we seek to lead us. And for those who lead, this is our only hope, our only way to lead, to rest in the promises of God and to rest in Jesus, not to rest in our performance. Our performance will not prove us. Our performance will fail <laughs> at one point or another. So we must rest in the promises of God rest in Jesus, that his choosing us to lead is where our greatest qualification comes from, not in what we provide. Now, you might be saying, okay, that's all great and good, and I can see how that works itself out in the church and maybe parachurch organizations and maybe, you know, ministries, parachurch ministries, but how does this work itself out in, with those who aren't Christians, who those who don't follow Jesus? Well, ultimately, we should desire leaders like this in any sphere of life. The reality is that that's not likely in every sphere of life. And so we have to take these principles and look to see what does this mean for us as we look for those in leadership positions, maybe in our businesses, in our schools, in our communities, in our state, in our nation, 
We must look for those who understand how they lead, how their leadership is not purely in their own capabilities, their own abilities. It's not in their pride. It's not in their arrogance. It is understanding that they lead because they have been placed in this position. They, they lead out of a sense of desiring to serve others, that they lead with humility, that they lead understanding that there are others who may be able to give input and advice that they should listen to. We must take that and understand as we look to our leadership outside of those who profess faith in Christ. And that leads us into a different way, right? A different view. We have to view leadership differently. We also have leadership as a different way. In Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45, Jesus gives us this. He said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. And what Jesus is doing is that James and John had just come to Jesus and asked him to place them on his right and left hand when he came into his kingdom to give them position of authority, to give them positions of, of power in the kingdom. And Jesus is like, wait, 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 wait. You guys have bought in to this whole leadership structure. You've bought into this whole way of leading that you see happening in the world. That's not the way of my kingdom. You know, it's easy to succumb to this thinking. It's easy to, to see in our schools, in our workplaces, in, our, in the companies that we work for, in our communities, in our state, in our nation. Wherever we're looking, when we see leadership, we can buy into this idea that when I get into this position or when that person gets into that position, I'll be able to do this. They'll be able to do that. They will make this work for me. I will be able to make it work for me. And even with the right intentions, we often still fall into this trap that Jesus is warning us of, that Jesus is commanding us not to. That the authority that we have is not to be used to lord over, to get, to do, to, for our own good, but for the good of others. Robert Raines wrote a poem about this passage of scripture. I don't typically read poetry in my sermons, but this one really struck me. He writes, I am like James and John. Lord, I size up other people in terms of what they can do for me, how they can further my program, feed my ego, satisfy my needs, give me strategic advantage. I exploit people, ostensibly for your sake, but really for my own. Lord, I turn to you to get the inside track, and obtain special favors. 
your direction for my schemes, your power for my projects, your sanction for my ambitions, your blank check for whatever I want. I am like James and John. There's so much truth, I think, in Robert Burns's, Robert Raines's words there. That even as Christians in our leadership, we seek to find ways to get Jesus to work for us. To get what we want from him. By taking our desire and making it his. But Jesus says there is a different way, a better way, another way that he's calling us to. And he does this by speaking of himself as the Son of Man. Now, Son of Man was the term, the name given to the one who would come, the Messiah that Daniel saw in his dream. And he was, by saying this, he was saying the Son of Man, he said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And what he meant was, and is the unique representation of the human race. He's not merely a human being. He is the human being, the true man, the son of man, the man who lives the truest human life, who served others instead of serving others, seeking others to serve him. He is the ideal man, the man for all men. And he did not come to be served, but to serve and to live a life of sacrifice and ultimately to sacrifice his life for the ransom of many. As we think about leadership selection today, it's valuable for us to remember those words of God to Samuel. The Lord looks upon the heart. In God's upside-down kingdom, the last or the overlooked may end up being the best choice. The best leader may be the one nobody is looking for. The best leader may be the nobody that nobody is looking for. You know, and it can be tempting to jump at the really impressive person, right? The one who oozes uh, charisma, the person or other that the person or other people seem to want to follow. They have a high self-confidence. They seem to have all the answers. But what's interesting is that. According to a 2012 Harvard Business Review article by Thomas Camaro Prezumik, who is a chief talent scientist at Manpower Group, professor of business psychology at University, of, University College London and Columbia University, he says that high self-confidence actually leads to lower performance. Seems counterintuitive. He did say extremely low confidence is not helpful, Right? So extremely high confidence isn't good, but extremely low confidence isn't good either. He said extremely low confidence isn't helpful because it inhibits performance by inducing fear, worry, and stress, which may drive people to give up sooner or later. But too high of a confidence doesn't produce good leadership. He said just low enough confidence actually is what good leaders need. He said there's three, three reasons for it. He said... Lower self-confidence makes you pay attention to negative feedback and be self-critical. 
said most people get trapped in their optimistic biases. So they tend to listen to positive feedback and ignore negative feedback. They want to believe that they are, in fact, a good, really good leader. They don't want to hear that there might be those who are being left behind in their leadership. And although this may help them come across as confident to others, it's detrimental to their leadership. So the second thing that lower self-confidence can motivate you to work harder and prepare more. If you're serious about your goals, you will have more incentive to work hard when you lack confidence in your abilities. In fact, low confidence is only uh, demotivating when you are not serious about your goals. He said most people like the idea of being exceptional. And most leaders with high confidence think they're exceptional. But they don't do enough to achieve it. Third thing he says is lower self-confidence reduces arrogance or being deluged, or deluded, sorry. Lower self-confidence reduces arrogance or being deluded. Now, remember, this is from 2020, and I am quoting this article, right? He goes on. He said, although we live in a world that worships those who worship themselves, from Donald Trump to Lady Gaga to the latest reality TV star, the consequences of hubris are now beyond debate. So according to Gallup, over 60% of employees either dislike or hate their jobs, and the most common reason is that they have narcissistic bosses. He contends if leaders were less arrogant, productivity rates would go up and turnover rates would go down. Now, I cite this because I think there's some really good wisdom here for us. Now, he doesn't state this the way that we read in Scripture, but, I, but what he outlines here is really from a non-biblical understanding of things is what God is getting at in our passages today. Right? He's, re he's reminding us that our ultimate leadership is not in, in our great abilities, it's in Him. The, the leaders that we should desire are not in their innate great abilities, but in how they understand themselves in relationship to God. That they, as leaders, we are to seek to serve others. That we are to find ways in which they can become better who they are, that we are to not think too highly of ourselves, right? that we are to not be ones who came to find people to serve us, but we came to serve them. We look at the ways in which God views us, the inner workings of our heart are what's most important. You see, because charisma is not what God values, character is. So we have to ask ourselves, what would it take to learn to see a person's character through God's eyes? How, how do we as God's people, or do we as God's people even care? Do we fall in the same trap as James and John, as Samuel? Do we look at what seemingly seems to be what good leaders would possess? Or do we 
look with the eyes of God as much as we can. Understand as much as we can the heart of God and seeking leaders that display that or ourselves being leaders that understand that. You see, God sees according to the heart. As we seek to choose our leaders well, we must seek to know the heart of God and choose our leaders according to His will as best we can discern. For those called to lead, may we not rely on our own competence, the lie that we have all the answers, that there's no one else that can help us, can give us input. May we not have a self-serving need to lead, but may we rest upon Jesus, follow Him, the one who created both the supernova and the firefly and holds them all together by the power of His Word, the one who came not to be served but to serve, the one, the very Word of God who proclaims all this into being, holds it all together, calls us, his followers, to be those who came to serve, not to be served. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your servants, Samuel, and your son, our Savior, Jesus. And we thank you for the reminder that you've given us today through your, in your word of what it means to seek leading shalom. Lord, to be those who seek to put those in positions of leadership over us that live in light of your direction. Lord, for those of us who are in position of leadership in whatever area we are in, schools, family, churches, business, government, or wherever we, we find ourselves, in our com com communities, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be those who lead in, with a new view in a new way. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.